The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. As we continue in our time together to think about the series we're in, we just started a series in the book of Exodus last week. So we're in Exodus chapter 2 today. And one of the things I wanted to bring to your attention, uh, if you don't know about it yet, but maybe a lot of you already do, but uh, there's an organization called The Bible Project. And uh, they put out these amazing videos, animated videos that really tell the story of the Bible. Uh, they do books of the Bible. They also do theology, all different things. But if you check it out, um, there's actually, if you scan that QR code, especially for those with kids, you can actually get the overview, the animated version of the entire book of Exodus. And it just spells it out. And for someone with ADD like me, I need some things moving around and things I can follow. And so maybe some of your kids do as well. I know our youngest son, uh, you can't get his attention uh, very well at all. But when we throw one of these on the screen in our house, it's devotional time. It's time to check in. And he's locked in. And so uh, check it out. It's a great resource. They have them in all different languages. It's, it's, it's great. They're out of or- the, the state of Oregon they come out of. And they just do great work there. So check it out. Uh, so this passage comes after uh, Pharaoh's order to kill all young Hebrew boys uh, that are... Uh, newborn, and to throw them into the Nile River. That's kind of where we left it last week. If you missed it, uh, that's kind of just hanging out there. And you have this order to kill these baby boys. Um, We're going to look at today that God is always working. You're going to hear a theme of that, that God is always working. No matter what is going on, he's always working. And we can see that happening here In verses 1 through 10, God works through divine protection. Let's look at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him uh, for a basket, made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant uh, woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. What a fascinating story. This first half of our time together today, we're looking at God's work through divine protection. And so it says they're from Levi which is the future priestly family, the tribe of Levi, who would carry out all their tabernacle duties, people that would be set apart for God's work. And you can see that Moses was born under a death sentence. Before he even comes out, he's sentenced to death. And this is what he's born into. Imagine the fear and worry during the first three months. Those of you that are parents, Man, what a powerful, challenging 
thought to think, I have to keep this newborn quiet. Anybody who's had a newborn knows that's not happening, right? And so she has to figure out a way and they have to figure out a way, but their fear of God outweighed their fear of the most powerful ruler that existed at that time. They had faith, even though they were in the face of horrible and evil intentions. And although unnamed in this passage, we actually find out their name later in the Bible. This woman, Jochebed, and her husband, Amram, would go on to be included in the infamous Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So obviously, they had great faith when Moses came along. So to try to keep a newborn quiet, oh man, it seems impossible. So verse three and four come along and we see this desperation. And it's interesting to look at and consider the idea of desperation. Nowhere else to turn, nothing else to do. What do I do? And oftentimes desperation often spurs amazing creativity. And so as we're pushed to our limit, we start thinking differently and maybe even have unique thoughts we never had before. And here she is, the mom of Moses, saying, I gotta do something. And she grabs those papyrus reeds and grabs that black tar and builds herself a boat. It's an interesting thing that she does and she had nowhere else to turn. It's also interesting to think about the Hebrew word that's used here for this little boat. It's tebha. And it's only used two times in all the Bible. Does anybody know what the other use of it would be? The ark, yeah. The ark. And so we have highlighted here two means or modes of, of saving both the ark and this little boat, this little basket. Umberto Casuto says this is certainly not a mere coincidence. In both instances, one worthy of being saved and destined to bring salvation to others is to be rescued from death by drowning. So although he was placed in the reeds, his mom carefully placed him there so hopefully he wouldn't float away, there was still plenty of danger. I even looked up to the Nile River to make sure I was correct here, and yes, they have crocodiles, and they also have hippos, even more dangerous. And so this wasn't something she was just like, oh, I'll just put him in, you know, where Lake Belton or something. I don't know, is that dangerous? I'm not sure. Uh, there's a lots of danger. It was the only option she had. And it's interesting that technically she even obeyed Pharaoh's order. She threw her son into the river. But fortunately for her, she made a boat first, right? And so in this moment, she's really out of options and she puts him into this little boat and it's also important to note that leaving your uh, child in the hands of providence was pretty common especially in the old testament well there's different stories we don't have time to get into but there's different stories when whether a, a child was given back to god or was placed into his hands for god to divinely take care of and this is what's happening but I think it's important also for us to pause to consider Pharaoh and his aggression. And it's similar to what I've spoke on uh, before, Psalm chapter one, 
where we have a downward spiral of sin, where you, you walk in the counsel of the ungodly, you stand in the way of sinners, and you sit in the seat of the scornful. And this idea of progression happens when it comes to evil. Pharaoh went from someone who saw these Israelites growing, wanted to eliminate them, and so he started with abuse and slavery. And that didn't do the trick, so he moves on to the next progression. And he says, okay, behind closed doors, I'm going to use these midwives to get rid of these boys. And then that didn't work, so he goes on to even further progression, the unheard of act. I mean, to take a little newborn and throw it into a river. And I think it's powerful for us to consider that evil carries with it an intense desire to consume. See, it's not satisfied with a little nibble. It must continue to feast and it lusts for more. And some of you in this room are experiencing that even now. Where you've given in the temptation and sin was waiting at your door and you welcomed it it into your life. And my pause in this time in this passage is is to beg you to come back because it only leads to destruction. It only leads to more steps of evil until your own life is destroyed and often the people around you are destroyed as well. See, Pharaoh didn't have a knowledge of God, but we do. You have the privilege of reading his word, hearing it, singing about it. And so maybe we can all take this warning to take a closer look at our own hearts. It's easy for us to say, obviously, Pharaoh was evil and wicked. But for us to sit there and say that without noticing our own propensity to evil would be missing the point and missing a warning. James even warns, warns about it in one chapter 1, verse 14 and 16. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I've used this quote many times, but it's a powerful one from John Owen. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. See, God gives divine intervention and perfect care. Verse 5 through 10, we're going to look and see God working. Philip Ryken uh, gives a commentary about this thick on Exodus, filled with all good things to help us understand the book. And that's one of the highlights he makes that we're going to focus on in this time together, that God is working. That God is always working. First of all, he's at work in Moses' birth. See, Moses' mom knew there was something special. Go look at verse 10 again. There's something unique about him. She saw that he was a fine child. I don't know exactly what all that means, but another version says a goodly child. And it actually kind of carries with it the idea of uh, creation. And what did God do when he saw what he created? He saw that it was good, and he kept repeating that over and over again. And I don't know if he came out glowing or (laughs) what, but... Something about Moses caught his mom's attention. So God was at work there. there. And ultimately, Moses, among other characters in the Bible, 
are what's called types of Christ, where they're not divine, but they point people to the Savior, although flawed. And here we have the beginning of his life where God is at work. But God's also at work in the baby's basket, in Moses' basket, in this little mini ark. This is really interesting to think about. At one moment in history, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was floating in a basket among the crocodiles in the Nile River. At this one moment in time. But I will add, that place where he was, he was never more safe. Among the crocodiles, with a big question mark over his life. God was caring for him even there and maybe for you in your life now, you're in a circumstance that seems desperate and dire and and difficult and, and when we were praying, you're literally praying for yourself because you're in mourning or you're in trouble or or as we sang about, the anxiety and despair are overwhelming. But for you, you can find comfort that God is working, that God is working in your life even when you can't see it. And here it is, God is not only at work in his birth and the little baby ark, but God was at work in the life of Pharaoh's daughter, an unlikely source. See, God orchestrated that she would go down on that river at just the right time, right? But not only that, but in his mercy, God replaced the genocidal heart of, his, of her father with a heart of compassion and empathy. One thing we can take from that is that she was not defined by the sins of her father. But instead, God used her in an amazing way to show compassion. But it also shows us that God's salvation is not just limited to his people. If you look ahead in Exodus chapter 12, when it was time for them to actually exit, it says in verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. See, God's plan has always been to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 illustrates this. A great scene is painted here. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, not only that, though, God also worked with Pharaoh's daughter to give Moses the most excellent training that he could have available to him. Acts 7, 22 says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So here he is, someone trained, where people from all over the known world were sending, rich people were sending their children to Egypt to be trained. And here's Moses brought into the house of the guy who sentenced him to to be killed. And yet he's brought in to his own house to be trained. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. And here's God at work through Pharaoh's daughter. But God was also at work through his sister Miriam. It's not a stretch, I don't think, to think through like, well, maybe people then, the Hebrews knew of the bathing practices, who was coming and going, and maybe knew that Pharaoh's daughter would be there if you want to make a connection, but it's not in the text. 
But either way, you can't discount what is happening here. Here's Miriam watching from afar, knows where the basket is, and then sees Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage coming to the river. And then she watches Pharaoh's daughter discover Moses. Now maybe if you can put yourself in her shoes and you're seeing this, I don't know what your feelings would be, but for me, it would be great fear. This is Pharaoh's daughter, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What is she gonna do with this baby? And so here is Miriam in this moment, right? Not sure what to do, but in a moment where God again is working, she sees that her helpless brother, but in a moment of d- divine wisdom and courage, she runs up to Pharaoh's daughter. Now that alone was an act of like unheard of, like running up to a celebrity, you know, and he got the security guards, get out of here. What are you doing? Especially a Hebrew daughter? No. But she's able to run up to her and say, hey, I got an idea. It's clever, right? Verse seven, shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women? to nurse the child for you? What a clever girl. God's at work. He puts that in her heart and her mind to introduce this and here we go. God's at work through Moses' mother as well. Let's hit the refresh button on this story again. Think about what's happening here. Infanticide is ordered. Moses is born survives miraculously three months, but his mother gets desperate. She takes a great leap of faith and puts him in a basket in the Nile River, and she prays and waits. We don't know how long she waited, but she waited. Imagine what she was going through while she's waiting. And then she gets the most amazing job proposal that you could ever imagine a mom getting. Hey, how about you come and raise your own son and we'll pay you for it. And here it is, God's at work through Pharaoh's daughter, through even Pharaoh himself, his riches passed down to the daughter to pay for Moses to be trained and raised. And not only that, he didn't immediately go into Pharaoh's house, he got to go back to his own house. And his mom and dad got to train him in these formative years in the Hebrew life. And the stories of God and how he's brought them out and what his plans were. So I don't know if you're missing this right now, but God is at work. When you lose a loved one, God is at work. When a friend stabs you in the back, God is at work. When you lose your job, God is at work. When all hope seems lost, God is at work when you are severely depressed. God is at work. When you're enslaved by addiction, God is at work. When it appears that Satan is winning, God is at work. When evil seems relentless, God is at work. So Pharaoh's daughter calls him Moses. And it's really fascinating how she got that name. She grabs the basket, pulls it out of the water, and that sound that it made, that's what she named him, Musha. That's what it sounds like in Hebrew. 
fascinating. I don't know how you got your name, but it's probably not as good as that. Maybe it is. I don't know. But here it is. You're Moses. And you think it would be something really elevated, but that's what she did. And it's interesting also to note, and you can study this later, but how water is tied into this rescue and water is tied into many rescues throughout Scripture, whether it's Noah, Moses, uh, Jonah, the Israelites, the Jordan River, the Red Sea, Naaman, Peter, so many. Jesus baptized in the water. All these things that are highlighted through this water rescue. So the Hebrew midwives stood up against injustice. Moses' mom did as well, and so did his sister. Pharaoh's daughters saved him from injustice. And Moses will go on in the second half of this passage and then into the rest of his life to adopt a heart of fighting injustice. Not perfect. You'll see many times he's a flawed man, including in the next verses. So God works through divine direction. Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So here's Moses, right? We, got a, we have a lot more detail about Moses in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is about to be killed, stoned to death. And Stephen goes off, I mean, a history of the people of Israel. It's amazing. If you read in there, Stephen gives pieces, some things together that we don't have in Exodus 2, even Moses' age at 40 at this time. And it says he, he, he grew up, and so we see he's 40. He also states that it was put in his heart to visit his brothers in their affliction. Although he grew up in Pharaoh's house, he knew that the Israelites were his people. And so there's this heart that he has, and he looked at his brothers with compassion and empathy, and in that moment where he sees his brother being beaten, doesn't say at what point he was beaten, maybe to the point of death, I don't know but he's protecting him and kills this Egyptian. And we can understand from the text that he knows it's not right. It's kind of like a little kid before he steals a cookie out of the cookie jar looking this way and that, right? Kind of get the idea he, he knew this wasn't okay. We can further get the idea because he drug him off and hit him in the sand. So he knew this wasn't right. It's kind of interesting in Moses' immaturity and he's not ready yet to lead. He's trying to take matters into his own hands. He's trying physical power, right? He's trying this physical power and God's trying to say, hey, it's not gonna be that. Reminds us of Peter in the, when Jesus is arrested, right? And Peter gets his sword out and chops the dude's ear off, right? Peter's thinking it's gonna be about physical power and God's like, nope. Not doing it that way. And so here in this story, this part of the story, we see this happening. So Moses intervenes later after that with two Hebrews arguing. He assumes that he's ready to lead and thinks the brothers connect with him. Acts 7.25 says he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Kind of young leaders. I remember when I was young and 
I'm still prideful at times, but back then I really thought I was like God's gift to youth ministry, right? It's like, I got this. And then God kept teaching me over and over again. No, you don't. Up, fail again. Up, mess up, screw up. And it's like over and over again. And here's Moses in this education of messing up. And so here we have the Israelites. They didn't really welcome him. He's kind of caught in the middle. I'm not really with the Egyptians, but I tried to help with the Israelites, but they didn't connect with me. So what do I do? And he's caught here. So Pharaoh hears of it in verse 15 and Pharaoh wants to kill him. Of course, he fears for his life and he, he flees. But he also chose his allegiance. In Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he's looking to the reward. So what choices are you making? You could continue on the path of Pharaoh, consuming, following your own lusts and your own passions and end in destruction. Or you can maybe follow some of the actions of Moses to say, hey, I'm gonna choose something different. Something that might even cost me something. Actually not might, it will cost you something to follow Jesus. Well, that's the call in our lives. So he runs away, he flees to Midian, and there's a map up there to show you the journey, some speculation on how long that took, but anywhere from five to seven days, maybe longer. It was a long journey to get out of town, and if I were him, I would have run that far too, with Pharaoh on my heels. So we can look at verse 16 to 22 to see what happened next. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out, uh, out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses' uh, daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called him Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here's the story, the picture painted for us. Once again, we see Moses fighting injustice. He sees it at the well. He comes up, he's at the well. These women are here, but the shepherds always chase them off and they have to wait till they're all done to get water. And Moses is like, no, this ain't right. I'm gonna do this thing the right way. Chases them off. Maybe they were intimidated because maybe he still looked Egyptian. He even had to identify him as Egyptian and when the daughters share about him. But either way, he stands up to injustice. And oftentimes, a part of standing up to injustice, one of the reasons why we have local outreach as part of our ministry is serving. You stand up against injustice, and part of doing that is action and actually carrying things out. And what he does is make their life easier in this moment. So let's kind of picture this conversation, right? The girls come home, seven daughters. Dad is there. They come home and they tell about this Egyptian. He's like, hey, why are you home so early? You're usually not home so late. Or you're, usually you're home late. And, and they tell him about this man who kind of saved the day. And imagine being that dad, seven daughters, right? I have two and I can't even imagine, but seven daughters 
The choices, obviously, in that community aren't that great. Bunch of losers pushing women away from the well, right? And so here he is. Hey, you met this amazing man, a man of justice, a man of service. Where is he? Why are you leaving him hanging at the well? Bring him here. So they go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sounds like something a boy would do, not a girl. But uh, they leave him hanging at the well. Bring him here. So he spends time dwelling with them, and the father gave his approval in the form of Zipporah, his daughter. And it's interesting. They have a son. His name's Gershom. The first three letters is a Hebrew word, and it means foreigner, sojourner. And so when you look at that word and kind of take that in, we can see that Moses is giving him this name to not only connect himself that he was a foreigner and a sojourner, but also ultimately to connect to his future people, that they're foreigners. We can even see it ultimately in Deuteronomy 10, 19. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then finally, we can look at the last three verses to see God's work through divine attention. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. See, the people cried out and you can see a lot of references to this story in the uh, animated movie that's kind of older called Prince of Egypt. Not a lot of you know, biblical theology, but if you look at one song, Deliver Us, and you listen to that song, it illustrates all of what Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrews were going through. And it's a great way maybe for your kids to connect with a story, although it takes some liberties there that are not in the text. But God heard the groaning and crying of his people after many days. So as I mentioned earlier, many days had passed, right? So it shows that he was okay with them in the suffering. That he was okay with them struggling and it's hard to reconcile and it's hard to imagine why, but he, it says here, after many days, God has us sometimes in the pain, the sorrow, the seeking. Maybe your family's like ours and have had some times of difficulty. I know many of you have had way more difficulty than the Cartwright family. We've gone through the loss of Candace's mom at an early age. A surgery for Candace, then a surgery for Sydney, then a surgery for Kendall, and then we find out uh, last week that Kendall's going to need another surgery. She tore her ACL in a soccer game. And in those moments where you're like, what in the world? Why is it just one thing after the other? It doesn't compare in anything, any way, compared to what they were dealing with. But still, Personally, you think about what is going on. And as I'm reading this Bible reading plan with some guys from my small group, you know, God divinely orchestrates scripture as you read it. It comes alive and exactly when you need it. And to be brutally honest, I was about five days behind. But I will say they're even further behind just to call them out. But uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, so I'm reading this scripture, right? And I'm reading, and boom, right after she injured, and Kendall injures her knee, here's the scripture that I was able to share with Kendall, my family, my small group, here it is. 
God's always working. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You notice a theme? So here he is with the people remembering his covenant, not meaning that he forgot them, but just acknowledging, hey, yes, I have a covenant with you and I will carry it out. And he has four action verbs. I have no time left to get into it, but you can study it this week. Amazing action verbs that God did. Look at the last two verses. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. God heard, he remembered his covenant, He saw them and he knew. He heard his people's groaning. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. We began this passage with the sound of a baby crying and we end this passage with the sound of God hearing the cries of his people for rescue. For you today, in your struggles, you can see the parallel of the story, Moses, to another story down the road in human history. It's a baby born under political turmoil, an order given to kill all the boys, the Jewish boys under age two. A mother and father blessed to raise him. A father warned by an angel to flee. You know where they fled to, ironically? Egypt. Jesus and his family took off from this death sentence and went to Egypt to get to escape. To God is at work. Tim Chester points out this repeated threat to the people of God and therefore to the promise of God is part of Satan's ongoing rebellion against God. See, Satan still thinks he's one. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he hasn't. He's been defeated. But yet he still threatens. So for us, we get the opportunity to embrace Jesus as our Savior and as our King. And we live in light of that victory that he won for us on the cross. So maybe for some of you, you've never connected a story like this to your need for a Savior, but it's there. Every story in Scripture points to Jesus. And maybe today's the day where you can say, I trust you, Jesus, as my Savior. I don't want to continue down a path of destruction. I'm going to embrace you and see you work in difficulty and in success. And also, maybe a challenge for those that are believers. See, you're reminded every day there's relentless evil all around you. But God's love triumphantly overcomes all of it, and he wants you to be an instrument of that love and justice to those in need.